Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Ayers LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and it is my pleasure to bring you articles from Time Magazine. This time I will be reading from the August 14th, 2023 issue. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. The first article is a view essay from the world of health. Headline, Half Human, Half Robot, by Jessica Smith, who is a Paralympic swimmer and a children's author. I was born missing my left arm, and while there really isn't anything I can't do, it felt like an obvious inadequacy in a world saturated with obsessive desire for perfection. In 1986, at 18 months, I was fitted with a prosthetic device, a decision made by my parents and doctors so that I would blend in and develop normally. But there was nothing empowering about forcing a toddler to wear a heavy and, at times, painful device. I spent my entire childhood and adolescence trying to conform. I did just about anything to ease the agonizing pains of the stares, the verbal taunts, and pointed fingers from my classmates. I wore long sleeves. I starved myself. I did whatever I needed to do to become invisible. By the time I was eight years old, I had no self-confidence, and the hand I was wearing was making it harder and harder for me to fit in. So I decided I was better off without one. I didn't need anyone to fix me because I wasn't broken. One of the most obvious ways for me to prove that I wasn't going to be limited by my disability or physical appearance was through movement. I developed a love for all sports, in particular swimming. There was a sense of freedom and exhilaration powering through the water. I was selected to my first Australian swimming team at age 13 and successfully represented my country for eight years, culminating in my selection to the 20, 2004 Paralympic team. I realized I'd made a name for myself because of my disability not in spite of it. I taught myself how to be comfortable in a society riddled with insecurities. So when I was first contacted in 2021 by Simon Pollard, whose company, Kavi, was on a mission to create the world's most advanced bionic hand, I was a bit surprised. He asked me to trial the hand, and if I was comfortable with the idea, to become a patient advocate. Initially, I said no. Then, curiosity got the better of me. For the past decade, I had been observing the unwavering interest in prosthetic hands from an industry and societal perspective. While I was busy advocating for disability rights, a new generation of leaders, like Amy Purdy and Nick Jukovic, harnessed the power of technology and social media to show just how far we've come posting selfies that displayed their wheelchairs, crutches, or artificial limbs without explanation. People feared disability less and were more curious. Society was beginning to see a person first and their disability second. Viewing disability through a social lens also meant acknowledging that a person is more disabled by their environment and the discrimination of others 
than by their actual disability. As those conversations shifted, I realized that there was an opportunity to use technology to steer the narrative for future generations. In July of 2022, I decided to trial the hand. And while I was blown away by the technology and comfort, the process wasn't and isn't easy. I am still developing neural pathways, making movements for the first time that most people have embedded in their muscle memory. The role of patient advocate is an enormous privilege. Through sharing my journey, I am able to reach thousands of other people who would benefit from extraordinary capabilities. That's why I wear a bionic hand, not because I'm broken, but because I have an opportunity to enhance the human capabilities that already exist. Now, when I walk into a school, students are no longer afraid, but intrigued and excited. That's so cool! She's half human, half robot, shouted a student on a recent school visit. The delight in his voice reassured me that working on disability inclusion is the right thing to do. And having these conversations with kids is exactly where I need to be. We move on now to the world of politics. Uh, the title of this next article is The Struggles of John Fetterman. An unconventional senator opens up about his battle with depression. When he looks back on the past year, a year in which he nearly died, became a U.S. Senator, and nearly died again, it is the debate that John Fetterman identifies as the breaking point. The debate lit the Mitch, he says, and then shakes his head in frustration and tries again. The right word is there in his brain, but he struggles to get it out. Excuse me, that shouldn't be lit the mitt, he stops and tries again. Lit the match, he says, finally. On October 25th of 2022, I knew I had to do it, he tells me. I knew that the voters deserved to have what, what the stroke has done to me, transparency that way. As soon as it was over, he knew it had not gone well. I knew at that moment that I was going to be considered, and consider myself, like a national embarrassment, he says. And then the darkness came. The Pennsylvania Democrat is sitting behind a big wooden desk in his sparsely furnished Senate office. His six foot eight inch frame is clad in a white hoodie, gray sweatshorts, and sneakers, a sartorial signature he has maintained despite Senate rules. For most votes, Fetterman discovered, he can stand just off the Senate floor and give a thumb ups or thumbs down to the clerk, thereby avoiding having to put on a suit. Surrounding us are three iPads propped up on stands, two facing him, one facing outward. Transcribe our conversation in real time, helping to compensate for the auditory processing difficulties brought on by his stroke that he had just over a year ago. Fetterman has settled in to talk, through tears, about his treatment for and recovery from the severe depression that followed. In February, he checked into the neuropsychiatry unit at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center outside the District of Columbia, 
where he remained for more than six weeks. By the time he got there, he was a shell of himself, gaunt, listless, barely able to function. I didn't think I could be fixed, he said. He didn't actively contemplate suicide, he tells me, but he would have welcomed death if it had come. If the doctor said, oh, by the way, you have six months left, I would have been like, okay, whatever, he says. That's how bleak it was. He considers himself lucky to have survived. Instead, Fetterman emerged transformed, he says, and has become evangelist for the treatment he believes saved his life. This openness about a serious, ongoing mental health ordeal has put Fetterman in uncharted territory for an American politician. A half-century ago, Senator Thomas Eagleton, selected as George McGovern's running mate, was dropped from the Democratic presidential ticket when it emerged that he had previously been hospitalized for depression. But since then, other politicians have been more open about mental illness, but typically in the past tense. There's been a transition in terms of stigma around these issues, says Minnesota Democrat Tina Smith, who disclosed her youthful battle with depression in a Senate floor speech in 2019. I was talking about my experiences when I was much younger. That is very different from the leap of faith that John has now taken. When Fetterman set out to shatter that long-standing taboo, it was far from clear what the response would be. But he had been met, by and large, with an outpouring of goodwill from colleagues and the public alike. Senators of both parties have lauded him. People come up to him on street corners to tell him he saved their life. On a May day that I interviewed him in Washington, a suit-jacketed Republican congressional officer staffer carrying a Chick-fil-A takeout bag approached Fetterman to thank him for talking about his struggles. As he sat on a park bench in a Philadelphia recently, a 28-year-old black woman pressed a handwritten note into his hands. Quote, I just wanted to thank you for your bravery, it read. I have lived with bipolar too for years. You have opened a door that has profoundly changed the conversation in my household and community. End quote. For so many years, we have demanded our politicians be perfect, free of scandal, perfectly groomed, never a hair or word out of place. To admit being broken was to admit being deficient. But Fetterman was never the kind of politician who put much stock in seeming perfect. And so he embarked on a high-stakes trust fall with the electorate of his diverse swing state, gambling that they would see him not as dangerously unstable, but as recognizably human. It turned out that many people loved their broken senator, not in spite of his brokenness, but because of it. <coughs> The stroke left Fetterman's cognitive abilities intact, according to his doctors, and in hours of interviews in D.C. and Pennsylvania, the most extensive he's given since his treatment, his quick wit and grasp of policy were apparent. Though he may eventually recover full fluency with time and continued speech therapy, he sometimes struggles to express the words in his mind, but his meaning is clear. My message is, I don't care if you're a Trumper, MAGA, 
or hard leftists or anyone in between. Depression comes across the spectrum and get help with it, he tells me. It's not a Democratic senator from Pennsylvania saying this. No, I'm just a husband and a father, somebody who was suffering from depression and got help. Here, his voice breaks. He wipes his eyes, takes a moment to compose himself. He has turned sideways and curled up in his chair, as if trying to shrink inside himself. Before it was too late, he finally says. Before some things could have damage that can't be undone. And I would just implore anybody to get help. Because it can work. It worked, and I'm so grateful. The people closest to Fetterman always knew there was a darkness in him. John was always a sad person, and that was okay, says his wife, Giselle Barreto Fetterman. He'd be like, I'm not too sad, you're just too happy. He was just very empathetic, I think, and he carried the pain of so many. I thought of him as melancholic. I always loved Abraham Lincoln, and historians would call him melancholy, which we later learned was really clinical depression. And I thought, oh, he's my Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't something I wanted to change about him. Born to working-class teenage parents in Reading, Pennsylvania, Fetterman, now 53, grew up upper-middle class in York after his father found success in the insurance industry. He played offensive tackle at Albright College, his dad's alma mater, then got an MBA at the University of Connecticut, planning to follow his Republican father into the family business. But when Fetterman was 24, his best friend died in a car accident prompting a round of soul-searching. He signed up for AmeriCorps, which sent him to work with low-income kids in Pittsburgh. After earning a degree from Harvard's Kennedy School, he returned to Western Pennsylvania to run a GED program in Braddock, a majority black former steel town. Braddock's population had declined precipitously. Poverty and violence were rampant. Fetterman ran for mayor in 2005 on a reform platform, beating the incumbent by a single vote in the Democratic primary. As mayor, he turned the town into a showcase for hipster urban renewal, art studios, organic gardens, with help from a foundation funded by his father. He tattooed the local zip code 15104 on one big forearm. On the other, he, linked, he inked the dates of every murder in Braddock during his tenure. Irreverent, unpretentious, and progressive, the big man with the soft heart was catnip to coastal media, featured in glossy magazine profiles and on thought leader panels. He was re-elected three times in 2007 a formerly undocumented Brazilian immigrant, Giselle Barreto Almeida, wrote Fetterman a letter saying she admired his efforts. He invited her to visit Braddock. They fell in love and were married a year later. Fetterman made a bid for Senate in 2016, losing the Democratic primary to a conventional candidate preferred by the Democratic establishment 
who went on to lose the general election. <clears throat> Two years later, he defeated the incumbent lieutenant governor in the Democratic primary, earning a spot on the ticket with incumbent Governor Tom Wolfe, a straight-laced former businessman. He refused the official residence that came with the job to remain in Braddock, nor was he much for ceremonial glad-handing. Pennsylvania political insiders I asked about Fetterman's tenure described him as a loner and a grump. The lieutenant governor has few official duties, but Fetterman managed to make waves. He hung gay pride and marijuana leaf flags from his office balcony, even after the legislature banned the practice. In his role overseeing the pardon board, he pushed to dramatically increase commutations and pardons. In February of 2021, Fetterman announced he would again run for Senate. As 2022 dawned, he had a huge lead on his primary opponents. He was drawing big crowds and an avalanche of small-dollar donations. He would sometimes complain he didn't feel well, but it never seemed serious. May 23, 2022, the Friday before the Tuesday primary election, Fetterman was in the car with Giselle, heading to a campaign event near Lancaster, when she noticed that his face seemed to be drooping on one side. They drove straight to the hospital. Four days later, Fetterman won the primary in a landslide. He spent the day of his victory anesthetized, having a pacemaker implanted in his heart. Before going under the knife, he recorded a video on his iPhone, a message to his children in case he didn't survive. From the earliest days after the stroke, doctors said a full recovery was eventually possible. Staffers and family members could detect glimpses of the old John and the way he cracked jokes and intuited the rhythms of the race. In the months when the recovery kept him off the campaign trail, he personally directed a savagely funny social media blitz depicting celebrity doctor Mehmet Oz, his Republican opponent, as an out-of-touch carpetbagger. Oz could have drawn on the soft-touch persona he'd honed on the Oprah Winfrey show to compassionately address Fetterman's health. Instead, he mocked him. If John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, then maybe he wouldn't have had a major stroke, a spokeswoman taunted. Later, Oz's campaign aired ads showing Fetterman struggling to speak. The Senate campaign would eventually go down as history's most expensive, a $300 million barrage of attacks that Fetterman believes exacerbated his depressive slide. Returning to the trail in August, Fetterman would ask audience members to raise their hand if they or their close relatives had experienced serious health problems. We have all been through this. I'm just doing it in the public eye, he'd say. And I have a doctor who's making fun of me. And I hope you don't have that in your life. The strategy was a product both of necessity and of Fetterman's political persona says Joe Calvello, his communications director. We made a bet on empathy that people are going to relate, Calvello says. It worked, he believes, because it was consistent with the Fetterman people knew. 
His politics is about struggle, Calvello says. As mayor, as lieutenant governor, he was always about the forgotten places, the forgotten communities, the people left behind. Yet even many who sympathized wondered whether Fetterman was up to the job. The election's lone debate loomed as the chance to prove himself. He prepared furiously. The format had never been a strength, but he did well enough in prep sessions that his camp felt optimistic. Fetterman now believes that debate will be remembered for decades as a debacle, like the tam time Dan Quayle could not spell potato. His voice cracked. He stammered. He struggled to say his own name. When he managed to string words together, they were often the wrong words. Asked people asked to explain his support for fracking, which he had previously opposed, he managed to stammer, I do support fracking, and I don't, I don't, I support fracking, and I stand, and I do support fracking. The reaction was brutal. Fetterman's own polls predicted he would lose the election. Two weeks later, he won by five points. Fetterman felt only numbness. Superstitious and assuming it would take days to count the votes, he had not prepared a victory speech. We're, we're all jumping up and down and he's just in disbelief, his advisor Rebecca Katz recalls. He went out and declared victory and then we all went home. And the darkness descended. The newly elected members of Congress were invited to an orientation in D.C. the week after the election. Giselle had to force her husband to go. Think of the insanity of that, Fetterman says. I work for two years. And at the end of that, after nearly dying, after the most infamous debate in American politics, I was going to not show up for orientation. That's what depression does. In news photographs from the event, Fetterman gr looks grim and uncomfortable. Surrounded by eager new lawmakers, his eyes are dim, his smile grudging. Colleagues remember wondering why he barely smoked, why he barely spoke, or made eye contact. Back in Braddock, the senator wouldn't get out of bed. Not for family meals at restaurants, not for school activities for the three kids, Carl, 14, Grace, 11, and August, 9. At Thanksgiving, he came down to the table for a few minutes, downed some food, and went back to bed, while Giselle and the children kept up the family tradition of watching planes, trains, and automobiles. At Christmas, Giselle handed Santa duty. My family was really confused. My kids, especially, Fetterman says. Why, Daddy, I thought you won. Why wouldn't you be happier? What's wrong with you? And I tried to explain to them that, oh, Daddy's tired. But I could begin to sense that they were blaming themselves. It still torments him, the helplessness and guilt that his children must have felt. They realized that something was really wrong, and they started to get more and more scared, he says. And I couldn't articulate to them, because I couldn't really articulate it to myself at this point, what? was going on. While other newly elected lawmakers worked to get their offices up and running, aides struggled to get Fetterman to engage. 
At first, it seemed like he was just having a hard time getting out of campaign mode, recalls Adam Gentleson, his chief of staff. He was always talking about how Republicans would bleep on every mistake. They're going to kill me with that. I kept saying, you're not running anymore. You don't have to worry about it. He became obsessed with a mini-scandal surrounding pollster Sean McElwee, who had done work for the campaign before resigning from his firm over his gambling on elections and ties to the disgraced crypto-billionaire Sam Beckmanfrey. At freshman orientation, he was completely preoccupied with people talking behind his back, Gentleson says. I had to constantly reassure him that everything was not a crisis. The winter was dark and cold. Fetterman's D.C. apartment was in a basement. So was his temporary office suite in the Capitol. On January 10th, the New York Times journalist Blake Hounshell died by suicide at age 44, leaving behind a wife and two young children. Fetterman had gotten to know Houndsbell, a fellow stroke survivor, during the campaign. Houndshell had largely recovered from his stroke, but continued to suffer nerve pain that exacerbated the depression that had plagued him since he was a young man. The physical and psychological effects of stroke frequently contribute to depression in survivors. The news that Houndshell had taken his life hit Fetterman hard. On February 8th, Senate Democrats held a retreat at the Library of Congress in D.C. Fetterman sat by himself and didn't talk to anybody. I was sitting with my wife at a table next to him, and it was clear he was not having a good day, recalls Bob Casey. Pennsylvania's senior senator. I attributed it to him being a little shy, which he is, you know, he's not the most extroverted person. And he was still in the early stages of using the iPad to deal with his auditory processing issues. Fetterman stumbled out of the retreat in a fog. Fearing he was having another stroke, his staff took him to George Washington University Hospital, where he stayed for two nights receiving fluids, and getting tests. The following Monday, he consulted Congress's attending physician, Brian Monahan, who diagnosed him with depression, recommended inpatient treatment, and began making arrangements for him to be admitted at Walter Reed. Finally, on February 15th, after pleading from staff and family members, Fetterman remembers it as an intervention. He agreed. Gentlesome and another Fetterman staffer, Bobby Maggio, escorted him out of the building. I will always remember walking to his car parked a block away, thinking, please don't change your mind, Gentleson recalls. He is a large man, and if he decided he didn't want to go, there was going to be nothing me and Bobby could do about it. It was 5 p.m., and the car inched along in rush hour traffic. The drive took an hour. Fetterman sat silently in the back, not saying a word. For the first two weeks at Walter Reed, Fetterman continued to decline. He stopped shaving and showering. His normally bare head grew fuzzy. His fingernails became like claws. He didn't get out of his pajamas. Seeing his face in the mirror, he didn't even recognize himself. 
he was consumed with self-loathing, convinced his own family wanted nothing to do with him. He knew he belonged in the hospital, but he felt trapped there. Dr. David Williamson, director of Walter Reed's inpatient neuropsychiatry program, oversaw Fetterman's treatment. Depression to the public connotes sadness. It wasn't so much a sadness presentation, Williamson tells me. The cardinal feature of the medical illness of depression is slowed speech, slowed movement, and the lack of any drive or initiative. He was very passive, very flat, very unemotional, almost mute, although he did talk. Just a lack of responsiveness and a flatness, a lack of that spark or passion you would expect to see in humans. Williamson's team gathered records from Fetterman's doctors in D.C. and Pennsylvania and ran tests. A 360-degree review of his cardiac health, neurologic health, mental state, behavior, and daily functioning, as Williamson puts it. They found, among other things, that Fetterman's hearing was severely diminished, exacerbating his auditory issues. He now wears hearing aids. Because he had lost so much weight, his heart medications were at too high a dosage. Cardiac tests and brain scans showed he had not suffered any further physical damage or stroke. Fetterman gave his doctor permission to discuss his treatment with me, but declined to disclose the names and doses of his medications. After a couple of weeks of medication adjustment, Fetterman began to improve, Williamson says. His sleep got better. He began to show more emotion, regain his sense of humor. Williamson sought to educate Fetterman about his illness, to get him to see that it was not mere sadness, but a medical condition rooted in brain chemistry. The senator seemed unconvinced until one weekend Williamson persuaded him to read Understanding Depression, a book by Dr. Raymond DiPaolo. I came in on Monday morning and he was so animated, Williamson says. He had bookmarked and dog-eared and highlighted whole sections of that book. Giselle, it turned out, had given Fetterman the same book a decade earlier, but he hadn't read it. Fetterman began to venture outside into the ward's sunny courtyard, but he still refused to see his family until one day a staff therapist said something that flipped a switch. The therapist, she's like, hey, your wife and your kids want to come. What do you think? And I was like, no, no, the kids don't want to see me. I ruined my son's birthday. I haven't been a participant in their lives for the past couple of months. And the moment that changed everything was when that young therapist said, kids need their daddy's hugs. He chokes up at the memory of it. It was so simple, so clear, and so suddenly obvious. Giselle brought the family and they picked up a packet of post-it notes that Fetterman's father had left to help him with his reading. In ballpoint pen, they covered the neon pink, yellow, and blue stickies with pictures and messages. We love you. Best dad ever. 
You will get better. Recounting this memory at the house in Braddock, Fetterman pauses our conversation and lopes back to the bedroom to retrieve the post-its. There are more than 100 of them, preserved in a wood frame. I'm going to save these till the day I die, he says, crying. Their visit was really kind of a pivot, where I realized that this is a choice. You have the support, you have the medical community, you have therapy. And this was a catalyst that helped direct me to the way forward. The final two weeks of his hospital stay were spent fine-tuning a treatment regimen. On March 31st, he left the ward and went home to Janelle and the kids. On April 17th, he returned to the Senate. Williamson says Fetterman's depression is now in remission. His prognosis is good, the doctor adds, providing that he continues to take his medication and he is very strongly committed to medication and treatment over the long term. The senator and his team never considered trying to hide the cause of his hospitalization at Walter Reed. We were never for a minute going to say he was being treated for exhaustion, Katz says, but they weren't sure what the reaction would be when they first announced he'd been admitted. As they hit send on the press release, Jettelson and Covello recall holding their breath and exchanging a here-goes-nothing glance. They needn't have worried. Lawmakers from both parties expressed support, in public and private. Heidi and I are lifting John up in prayer. Mental illness is real and serious, tweeted Texas Republican Ted Cruz. Tina Smith, the Minnesota Democrat, brought donuts to his staff who were soon overwhelmed with similar gifts from Republicans and Democrats alike. Republican Senator Katie Britt of Alabama, Fetterman's neighbor in the Capitol basement, was among the first colleagues to visit him in the hospital. Though both have now moved to better offices, their bond endures. Crossing paths in a Capitol tunnel one recent afternoon, Fetterman yelled, Alabama! and gave her a fist bump. Unsolicited, so many colleagues have expressed both publicly and privately their appreciation that he did this, says Democratic Senator Peter Welch of Vermont, who notes that the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath triggered a widespread mental health crisis that the nation is struggling to address. A lot of citizens have too. It was a powerful and a helpful thing that he did. Constituents flooded Fetterman's office with messages of support. Attached below is today's call report, reads the daily internal email tabulating constituent calls to his Washington office from February 16th, the day he went public. Total number of calls, 56. Top call topics, 1. Well wishes for the senator, 32. No other topic had more than two callers. The pattern continued throughout his hospitalization. Williamson believes Fetterman's openness about his struggles has the power to help countless others. In a recent Gallup survey, 18% of Americans said they have depression, a rate that has nearly doubled in the past decade. Studies have found that fewer than 10% of sufferers get psychiatric treatment. 
we struggle in the healthcare world to message this condition to the public, Williamson says. People feel like losing their drive, their emotional repertoire, their passion, that these things are somehow an, an indictment of their personality or something that they've done wrong. If you get chest pains, most people know that's bad and you've got to go to the ER. We need to get there with depression. And the way we're going to get there is when public figures like Senator Fetterman speaks out and say that help is out there and you can get better. May 16th, 2023. A normal day in the life of an abnormal U.S. Senator. In the morning, Fetterman meets with the CEO of IKEA. Later, he will receive the family of an American held prisoner in Russia. The meetings will be awkward for all involved. Fetterman is still learning to navigate his limitations. And, for the most part, he expects everyone else to adapt. The day's main event is a hearing of the Senate Banking Committee. The former executives of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which failed in March and were taken over by federal regulators, are set to testify. Fetterman, the most junior of the 23 senators on the committee, is scheduled to speak last. In his first floor suite in the Russell Building, his staff brainstorms ways to channel the righteous indignation Fetterman feels toward the executives, fat cats as he sees them, who got off easy and left the little guy holding the bag. None of the Democrats are being big enough. A-holes to this guy, Jettelson says as he watches the start of the hearing. They land on the idea of berating the former SVB boss, Gregory Becker, for jetting off on a Hawaiian vacation the same day he was ousted as CEO. As the hearing nears the two-hour mark, Fetterman changes into a suit and heads through the Capitol's winding underground passages. With his hulking posture and lumbering gait, he is impossible to miss, and he is repeatedly stopped for selfage, selfies. Other than that, he walks in silence. His body man, Luke Borwagian, holds the iPad in front of him but the ambient hubbub has rendered it useless. Shortly before his turn to speak, the plan goes out the window. Britt, the Alabama Republican, has also latched on to the Hawaii tidbit and is grilling Becker about taking the trip while declining to return his bonus. Fetterman has to come up with a new angle on the fly. He settles on a complex idea related to the debt ceiling negotiation in which some Republicans called for work requirements for recipients of the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, better known as food stamps. If poor people have to prove that they're working in order to collect taxpayer-funded benefits, Fetterman wants to know, shouldn't CEOs get billion-dollar bailouts have to do the same thing? That's the idea, at least. But when Fetterman takes his seat, and sets out to make his point, what comes out is slightly less clear. The Republicans want to give a work requirement for SNAP, for a hungry family has to have this kind of penalties, some kind of word, working, relate requirements, he stammers. 
Shouldn't you have a working requirement after we sale your bank? Billions of your bank? Because they seem to be more preoccupied when then SNAP requirements were for works for hungry people, but not about protecting the tax, the taxpayers, you know, that will bail no matter whatever does about a bank crashing. The executives aren't sure how to react. Dumbfounded or confused, they don't answer. By late afternoon, Fetterman's questioning becomes the subject of more than 30,000 tweets. Some of them are from the left, celebrating the point he was trying to make. But the exchange really goes viral on the right, with critics mocking his inarticulateness. Fox News airs three segments on his performance. GOP Representative Ronnie Jackson of Texas, the former White House physician, calls Fetterman an absolute disgrace, adding, he is completely incapable of doing the job he was sent here to do. Many on the right remain obsessed with the idea that Fetterman is, as Tucker Carlson once put it, unapologetically brain damaged. Borwigen, the bearer of the iPad, went on a couple of bumble dates with a woman who kept prodding him to admit that his boss was incapacitated only to find out that she was actually an operative surreptitiously taping their encounters for the right-wing activist James O'Keefe. The video, posted in May, contains no such admission. Once, these types of attacks would have sent Fetterman spiraling. Today, he's able to let the negativity slide. He is no longer on social media. So anyone who reads your article and thinks, God damn it, I'm throwing my A-plus material directly at John, the good news is, I don't know what you're saying, he jokes. The freshman lawmaker is beginning to carve out his identity in the Senate. He co-sponsored pending bipartisan rail safety legislation in response to the February Norfolk Southern train derailment, which occurred just over the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. In May, he joined other Democrats in calling on President Biden to use the 14th Amendment to raise the debt ceiling unilaterally. The following month, he was one out of five Democratic senators to oppose the debt deal negotiated by Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a vote that puts him in the same camp as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Honestly, I swear I don't consider myself a progressive, he says. I'm just a guy with three kids, and it scares me to death that a bank president 3,000 miles away can crash and blow up, like my kids' college savings or whatever. I don't call that progressive. I call that an outrage. <clears throat> On a sweaty Saturday in June, the Fettermans line up for the start of the Pittsburgh Pride Parade. Giselle wears a rainbow-striped cotton sundress while the senator, clad in his usual work shirt and sweatshorts, has draped a full-size rainbow flag over his shoulders like a superhero cape. He had to miss last year's parade, which was soon after his stroke. A pair of black women in matching rainbow jerseys approach and are enveloped in Fetterman's embrace. A decade ago, a mayor of Braddock, he began marrying same-sex couples in defiance of state law. Princess and Judy Craighead were the first black couple he married. 
and have stayed friends with the Fettermans ever since. We wore dashikis at the ceremony, so he wanted to wear one too. So we had to find one a dashiki in size 5XL, laughs Princess, age 57, who works in a restaurant. Judy, 65, a disabled army veteran, says her elderly mother suffers from aphasia. Same as him, the stuff you want to come out doesn't come out right all the time, she says. But she's still the same person. Other Democrats, elected officials, make a quick appearance and leave, but not Fetterman. He starts at the front of the parade, but quickly falls back to the rear, stopping every few feet for selfies, hugs, and fist bumps. Young people squeal like they've just seen Taylor Swift. A stocky white woman in jean shorts buries her head in his chest. Diane de Gregorio, age 58, is a teamster who works on the loading dock of a nearby conventional center. I suffer from depression, but it's not something you talk about, she tells me. Hopefully, with him admitting it and getting treatment, it lets more people know that it's okay to say you have a problem, especially men who look like him. After the parade, Fetterman settles into an easy chair by a window in the converted car dealership in Pratic that his family now calls home. It's a massive, lost like space with exposed brick walls full of salvaged furniture and thrift store finds. The three kids are getting ready to go to the pool. Two rescue dogs, Levi and Artie, roam around the premises. Fetterman, in his sardonic fashion, wants me to know he's aware how cheesy some of his newfound gratitude sounds. Like you know when I was getting out I didn't think, woohoo, I'm on top of the world, he says. But like you have a life to live, and you're excited to live those, that life. A life to live, and you're excited to live those, that life. And, knock on wood, every day has been wonderful. And now I have a duty to pay it forward. Because, I'll be honest with you, I would be scared where I would be right now if I didn't have the kind of help I got at Walter Reed. And it's a shame that those types of resources are not available to everyone. But what is available is that I have a duty to be a champion of that. In retrospect, Fetterman believes that what happened to him was inevitable, that his natural melancholy would combine with the stroke and the blowtorch of the campaign to ignite his depression. While he knows many may see him as diminished or disabled, he believes what he's been through has made him stronger, wiser, more thoughtful, more appreciative. I thought I was really empathetic before, but after the stroke and then after this, I think it made me a much better senator. What he wants now, he says, is to be the voice that might have pulled him out of the darkness. And that's it for our recording for today from the August 14th issue of Time Magazine. Again, I remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airzilla are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share 
Time Magazine with you.